0: You guys, welcome back. This is week 40 of Creative Come Follow Me for the Old Testament. This week we are in our fourth of the five weeks of Isaiah, and I'm feeling pretty good, you guys. I mean, I just, I feel like we're getting it. I've talked to so many of you in the Instagram lives and in direct messages, on the discussion boards, and things are lighting up, and it is so fun. I know we're in a digital relationship here, but I feel like we're in this together, and I I am like rejoicing to be a part of it. So I hope you're feeling that. If you haven't felt that so far, this is a week where it absolutely can happen for you. Because this whole week from 50 to 57, you're going to read tons and tons about the Messiah. Isaiah focuses a bright, warm, vibrant light on the Savior this week. You're going to learn about his woundedness, how he came to receive the role that he has, why he chose it. And then I think the even bigger light is on what that incredible sacrifice means for us. How does it help our families? How does it help a posterity that we don't even know yet? How does it help people reconcile? In fact, if I had to pick a theme for this week, I feel like that's what it is. Isaiah warns about sin that divides and creates separation between us and God. And then he talks about this beautiful wounded healer who seeks to bring those back together again. And the only way to do that is to remove that sin. And we're going to talk all about that this week, but there is a reconciliation process that the Lord is constantly seeking and providing the tools for. And you'll kind of see that amplified throughout all the chapters this week. Another thing I think you'll see is opportunities to find peace, especially peace that comes amidst trouble. Uh, maybe this is just me being sensitive to this particular area, but I saw it all over the place um, that you don't, you don't need to wait till the end of your adversity or the end of your trials to find joy and peace. Those are woven through everything you're experiencing and they were for the children of Israel as well. So we're going to study and it's so good you guys. Okay. Grab your scriptures, grab your notes. You don't want to miss week 40. This summer I was at a reunion and we were all out kayaking in this great big reservoir. And I was so determined to take a lot of pictures and videos that I kept stopping in the middle of the reservoir so that I could take the shot. What was frustrating to me is so many times I would look up from my camera, like to get my bearings and realize that I had slowly drifted farther and farther away from my intended target. And I feel like that's kind of what's happening to the children of Israel. They're all of a sudden looking up, getting their bearings and thinking, whoa, how did we get here? They've been separating themselves from God all this time. But they, in some ways, are blaming God for that separation. They think that Jehovah has abandoned them. And this is where chapter 50 kicks off. He's trying to teach them, oh, no, I didn't go anywhere. I'm always right here. It's you that have pulled away from me. You've... You, your apathy has let this current carry you away from me. It's time to come home. So that's what he talks about in these first verses. He talks about, where's the bill of your mother's divorcement? Show me where I cast you out, where I pushed you aside. And he talks about selling you. These are a lot of Moses references that talk that teach you about how he sees his children. Um, he says he called them and there was none to answer. You almost can, you know, there's this ache. In his voice, this is Isaiah speaking messianically. You're going to see that a few times throughout this week's chapters that he's going to speak for the Savior and as the Savior, but this is Isaiah teaching. Um, And you hear this parental ache of, I tried to talk to you. I tried to reach out to you. I sent prophets to help you and you wouldn't answer. Um, So they're in struggle. And in three, he talks about what that struggle feels like. He says, I clothe the heavens with blackness. I make sackcloth their covering. He knows they're going to mourn. They're going to be devastated when they realize how far adrift they are. And I really like that reference of clothing the heavens with blackness. Um, I've felt this. I don't. You've probably felt this too, but you know how you sometimes, you inadvertently even create separation between yourself and your testimony you start to drift and you don't even really pay attention to it in the moment, or you think you're going to get back really soon. And then by the time you get your bearings, you're so much further off course than you thought you were. And it creates sometimes a bitterness, (laughs) at least it doesn't mean, because sometimes I can't get answers to prayers and I feel like the heavens are closed and I'll sit in Relief Society and everybody will be feeling something or tearing up and I feel nothing. And I just get this, there is a blackness that I struggle with if I am not constantly trying to come closer to God. It it doesn't come in all at once. It creeps in. But that's why I love this visual of the sky being shrouded with blackness. I don't think this is all at once. I think it's just this slow shift that he's trying to draw their attention to. And then he talks about in those next few verses, what he can offer. Again, I think he's trying to teach them what the actual mortal Jesus Christ will be like. So Isaiah is speaking messianically so that they'll recognize the Savior when they see him, you know, what, 700 years in the future. So look what he speaks. It's just beautiful language. Like in four, he says, the Lord God hath given me the tongue of the learned that I should know how to speak a word in a season to him that is weary. I loved this version. I mean, these are just little touch points about the Savior, but doesn't this sound like like the Savior's mortal ministry? Like, think of how he interacted, especially with women. I just love those stories. You know, you think about the woman at the well, the woman taken in adultery, the woman with the issue of blood. These are all women who were weary or cast off in one way or another. And the words he chose were so succinct and had round tones and softness that drew them in. That's the promise. If you if you come to him and if you seek the help of the spirit, you can have this spiritual gift. Granted, we will never be able to do it like the Savior did, but we need that, right? Have you ever had your kids come home from a hard day at school or they got bullied or you know something happened and you're like, I need the right words, you know, or someone is struggling with something and you're like, I just need to know what to say right now. That's the promise that he's offering. You'll know how to comfort the weary if you come to me. Some other things you'll learn about the savior who will live mortally and come happen in five and six. He talks about how he doesn't turn away. He talks about how he gave his back to the smiters, his cheeks to them that pluck up there. That's just a reference to anyone who seeks to humiliate you or lower you somehow. And he talks about how he didn't hide his face from shame and spitting. The savior, when he lived on this earth was a man who was acquainted with grief. We're going to study that later in 53, but he is someone who knows knows all those emotions, but he has his face focused forward. I wish I could articulate this as well as I felt it when I was studying it. The closest thing I can think of, I don't know if you've ever watched one of those, um, you know, like the Civil Rights Movement, how there were people who, who had people abusing them and mocking them. I, mean, I remember watching things like at the counter, you know, like people were spitting at them and there was a, a horrific amount of humiliation that was thrown their way and on their faces there was this quiet dignity because they knew who they were and they knew what they intended to accomplish and even if they didn't accomplish it they knew that they were setting things in motion so others could and there's a dignity that comes with that and that's what I see in the Savior in these verses. I love how it's phrased in seven and eight. For the Lord God will help me. Therefore, I circled all these. Therefores because you can hear that like strength in His meekness as He speaks. Therefore, I shall not be confounded. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint. Flint is just this hard rock that can't be moved, and that's His choice. In fact, this is how the Savior always lived. Right? It doesn't mean He has a face that is hard. It means His focus is firm. He knows exactly why he's here and what he's called to do. And he will look forward. Even when Peter tries to convince him not to, out of love, right? Peter's trying to say like, don't go to Jerusalem right now. We know what's going to happen. And the Savior says, you know, get by me, Saying He's like, I can't, this is my focus. I'm going forward. And it's really powerful to read it. And you find out how he's able to have that focus when you keep reading. So in eight, he is near that justifieth me. When you're close to God, when you're close to the spirit, you don't need to be afraid. It doesn't matter how much spitting or smiting or pain or humiliation are being cast at you. You don't need to be afraid because he is near. It continues at the end of that verse. He says, let us stand together. Who is mine adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God will help me. This is verse nine. Who is he that shall condemn me? Lo, They shall all wax old as a garment and moths shall eat them up. There is a understanding of God's permanence versus everyone else's mortality. And that's what we have to keep in mind when we struggle with being condescended to or belittled. There is, um, there is a quiet dignity in standing with the Savior. I just think there's power in it. I love the way it's phrased. So you need to look up. Remember which I about that last week? You need to look up for reassurance because that's what the Savior taught us. And when you go through the rest of the verses, you find out the alternative. There really isn't an alternative, but he has this, Isaiah has this beautiful way of describing it. We're going to talk about in the object lessons, but in 10, he talks about how they have no light. And then in 11, how they compass themselves about with sparks. These little flashy bursts of light that catch the eye, but can't heat, can't sustain, can't save. They are sparks compared to this radiant sun-like light that the Savior offers, and there's no comparison. That takes you to the end of 50, but it gets even better in 51. Chapter 51 shifts gears a little bit, because now he's speaking to the righteous, and he's talking more about the last days that will come, the gathering phase, and all the goodness that comes with it. So I love the way he begins in verse 1. If if he's trying to pump up the children of Israel, give them this like mighty pep talk to like, you can do this, let's go. Um, I feel like how he does it is to remind them who they are. It's the same way the Lord motivated Moses. Remember when he was was encountering the adversary and the reason he could defeat the adversary in that moment was because he knew who he was and he knew who God was. That's way back in Moses 1. What I love about this principle is that's how we're supposed to teach our families as well. If we want them to understand how to combat all the evil and all the wickedness that is in our world today— the best way to do it is to teach them who they are and who God is, what the atonement of Jesus Christ is and how powerful it is. That's how you endow your own kids with power to defeat all the forces that are pushing against them. So that's what he reminds them of. But the way he reminds them of it is talking about their ancestors. So he says, look unto the rock from whence you are hewn. You are divine. When when we talk about our, their divine nature, and lately that phrase, their divine DNA keeps coming up in conference, that's the rock from whence you are hewn. And if that's too far in the distance, like if that seems hazy, if you think about your heavenly parents and your connection to them and it feels hazy, then he gives you another option. And he says, look unto Abraham, look unto Sarah. What I love about this combination is, I don't think he's just giving us a male and a female example to look towards. I think he's t- talking about a family. I mean, think about their family. Sarah and Abraham are incredible individuals on their own. They both had huge trials, huge adversities that lasted decades sometimes, and you know, like stripped their heart to the very core, what, what do you really believe? And they both succeeded in their trials and they did it together. They as a family, Abraham and Sarah, and their posterity that eventually came after decades of time, They are a solid rock. Sometimes I think, especially with our kids, it's hard to see too far back. So you need to give them rocks that they're hewn from that are closer. So you need to talk about their ancestors and talk about the power that comes from being in that line. If you don't know those stories very well, learn them. The more we can teach our kids about the rocks from which they are hewn, not just the original, you know, your heavenly parents' rocks, but also the ones, these mortal ones that we can look to we're missing out on a source of power. So I love the way he phrases that verse. I also love the promises he talks about. He talks about how this wilderness is going to turn into an Eden again. Remember, we're talking about the end, the latter days. What I think is so powerful about this, you guys, is that doesn't just happen magically. It happens because of the law. So you're looking for hearken unto me, my people give ear unto me, O my nation, for Allah shall proceed from me. The way beauty comes about in this world and in Zion is because people honor the law. Because when you honor the law, when you really embrace your covenants, when you really seek to do good and to be good, what happens is you're endowed with power, priesthood power. You're endowed with spiritual gifts and talents. We saw this when they were rebuilding the wall. Remember how fast they rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem? And there were all these forces opposing them and all these people that were naysayers. And it wasn't that. God just swooped in and fixed all the walls of Jerusalem. What he did is he endowed them with power. He gave them the talents, the engineering know-how, the, you know, he, they figured out systems where they would sleep with a weapon in their hand in case they needed it. They figured out times when they could work with, you know, a sword in one hand and the trowel in the other. He endowed them with the strength to accomplish the work ahead. This is one of the things I think is so exciting about being part of building Zion that we're all going to be these like ordinary people who who have ordinary talents who will be endowed with power. Because we chose to honor our covenants and stick, stick with it, we will be blessed with the abilities beyond our own. I, don't you see that in your life all the time? When you fulfill your callings, all of a sudden you're able to do things you shouldn't be able to do, at least not as well as you pulled it off. And that's the promise of Zion. That will beautify the earth as we all use our talents for good and we try to make things better, uh, there is just peace that will come. So it just, it just makes you want to be a part of it. Right. I, I just, and for me, that's how it felt. And I think that's what Isaiah is hoping. Cause now he goes into his awake. He's like, awake, wake up. You know, I don't know if you've ever had those moments where you've been driving for a while and you're like, Oh, I'm, I'm like seven exits further than I thought it was. Sounds terrible and very unsafe. But you know, I've had those moments where I'm like trying to drive somewhere that's about 40 minutes away and my mind is like wandering and all of a sudden I'm like, oh, how did I get here? Um, That's what he's talking about. He's saying, even though you're righteous, you're going to have this tendency towards complacency and I need you to wake up. It's just like we heard with Alma in the Book of Mormon. Awake, arouse your faculties, get moving. Zion needs to be built and you need to help build it. So in eleven. This is when you see the results of them waking up. He says, if you will wake up, basically, you will return and you will come with singing to Zion. This isn't just the literal Zion that's going to be built again in Jerusalem, you know, back in Isaiah's day. This is looking forward to these latter days. And we will be rejoicing because we'll get to be a part of this mighty work. We will be a part of making a wall that we're like. I didn't have the talents. (laughs) I don't You know, it's, it's rare for me, but there are those moments where I'm like, I know I didn't, I know that wasn't me. And that is a time of rejoicing. When you can feel the Lord work through you, knowing all your frailties and weaknesses, you want to sing out. And that's what they're feeling. Um, They talk about Jehovah being the second comforter. When you flip the page, he talks about his version of comfort. just like we talked about last week. He's in your corner and he's helping you. That's what he's promising. I also love the phrase in 15 that he is the Lord of hosts, because we just talked about Abraham and Sarah and the rock from whence you are hewn. I think anytime you see that phrase, the Lord of hosts, it's to remind you how many people there are on the other side of the veil. We lose sight of that sometimes. And it's so pivotal when you're in a moment of fear. Remember when we were talking about Elisha and the servant and, you know, eyes to see, he just hopes the servant can have eyes to see all the chariots that are out there. That's what I think of whenever I see the phrase Lord of hosts, that there are countless others out there and he's ready to send them in to relieve me. I just have to, you know, have the guts to like make that happen. When you go a little bit further, he talks about waking up. He talks about the lack of leadership, which really is a reference to the lack of priesthood that they're going to have in the latter days and how that's going to need to be taught to them. It's going to need to be restored to them. And there's lots of cool prophecies all about that. But one of my favorite verses in 22, I'll have to go through it a little fast, but he talks about pleading the cause of his people. They're going to struggle. They're going to pull away. And then at the end of days, this gathering will happen and the Lord will plead their cause. One of the best things I read this week, I think it's from Elder Rendland. It's in the notes. But he talked about how often we talk about Jesus Christ being our advocate with the Father. But it's really important to remember that the Father is also our advocate. It's not that... Jesus Christ is pleading with the Father who only wants justice. Jesus Christ said over and over again in his mortal ministry and throughout the scriptures that he only does the will of the Father. So if he's pleading our cause, pleading for forgiveness and mercy, then that's what God the Father wants too. Our heavenly parents want that too. They they just have laws and things that have been set in motion that have to be complied with. That's why they gave us a savior. And I just love this understanding because I think sometimes we lose focus. Jesus Christ spent so much of his mortal ministry referring to the Father and his honor of the Father and his love of the Father. So I think we need to extend our understanding of the advocate to the Father as well. Whenever I read that phrase, advocate with the Father, ever since I read Elder Renlund's talk, I try to think of it like, advocate along with the Father. They are a team. They are a unified, mighty team that seek nothing but our joy and happiness and have created a plan to make that happen. So you'll see all of that in chapter 51. Chapter 52 rolls right, like it's right in line with what we read in 51. In fact, in the Book of Mormon, these are kind of spliced together, but I love some of the phrasing that you find in 52. This is when they're invited to awake, put on their strength, put on their beautiful garments. They're coming back to the priesthood. That's what he's inviting them to do is come back to the power that you've been blessed with. Come back to this covenant responsibility that you have as children of Abraham to take on the priesthood and take the gospel to all the world, put it back on what i love is the um undercurrent of agency that's woven in these verses like in 2 shake thyself from the dust and arise and sit down meaning like on a throne get back to who you are it's not something that the lord can do for them or that isaiah can do for them they need to shake themselves off and when we choose even in the smallest way to arise and shake off the dust of this mortal man <laughs> that i feel like we we have opportunities to catch a glimpse of who we really are. And that's what Isaiah wants them to understand. Remember who you are um, and that you can be redeemed. All these mistakes you've made, even generations long mistakes can be resolved. So he talks about the end of days and how that will happen from like seven to 10, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of them that bringeth good tidings. There's lots of beautiful conference talks about this, but for me, the most powerful visual for this is, I don't know, if you've been with me since the Book of Mormon, you'll remember how in my mind I have a team, (laughs) uh, this is going to sound ridiculous, but like I call them the giants and there are people that I have placed on this mental team. Whenever I find myself struggling with doubt, uh, especially about church doctrine or things that are uh, unclear to me, I picture that team, you know, like Elder Holland's on that team. Neely Maxwell's on that team. They're they're, Sherry Dews on that team. My mom's on that team. My dad's on that team. I picture them together. And and whatever my doubt is, whatever my worry is over here, I think, okay, if I was in a room with my Giants team, what would they tell me? How would they coach me? And I have no doubt that if you got Neil Maxwell and my mom together in a room, they could resolve almost anything. So I just... I love this, this visual where he's like, those are the feet that are beautiful upon the mountains. It's not just the angels. It's not just the prophets who come. It's anybody that's on your team. Anyone that's in your cloud of witnesses that can help you in those moments, they send beautiful messages and they call them out. I just, I just love it. Um, and then they talk about how they will sing together that they'll see eye to eye. This is that Zion feel in eight. When you go into nine, he talks about the Lord will comfort his people. Remember If you're all circling together and you're all listening to these gigantic voices of people who have a solid testimony, miracles happen. So he talks about how the Lord will make fair his arm. That means you're going to see his power. You're going to recognize it when you see it. That's what we all want, right? We all want to have the eyes to see those miracles as they roll out. And the promises trust in these beautiful feet upon the mountains that are singing out these choruses of truth trust in those, act on that trust, and then watch. His arm will be made bare. And then there's the invitation. This is probably will sound like Elder Holland as I read it, because he has a great talk called Sanctify Yourselves, I think, that, that uses this verse. But he says, this is 11, touch no unclean thing. Go ye out of the midst of her, be ye clean that bear the vessels of the Lord. You're not going to go by flight. This is not going to be like when you left Egypt in a hurry. This is going to be a dignified exit from Babylon. Uh, not... Not just the actual babylon but like the spiritual babylon as you choose to listen to your team of giants and learn from their testimonies and act on them you will start to separate yourself from babylon and it will be a rejoicing and what he's saying basically i think when i read these what he says is if you choose to sanctify yourself to use your agency not because you're compelled to do it but because you choose it then I can do wonders among you. That's the promise. I think his hands are tied a little bit if we choose not to sanctify ourselves. But as soon as you get yourself ready, things come, right? You just have to start engaging and then opportunities come. It's just this punch of power that comes in 52. You're gonna wanna slow down when you get to chapter 53 because honestly, every single sentence has weight. In fact, my favorite part of studying 53 was realizing how many conference talks reference all these thoughts about the Savior. They're everywhere. I tried to include a bunch in the notes. So I promise if you go in the notes, you'll learn far, far more than I can possibly say in this little segment of time. But let me do my best to get you through these and show you what you can't miss. I love what you see in two. This talks about the Savior being a tender plant. When I picture this, I, you know how if, you, if you've ever planted like a little sapling or a little seedling and you put these plastic shields around them or sometimes a cage to prevent deer from getting in and give them a chance to get the right amount of heat and light? That's kind of how I f- picture the Savior's childhood, that he's this tender plant that comes out of dry ground. He comes out of Nazareth, out of a carpenter's house, and nobody expects him there. But I love that we don't have many stories about his childhood. I mean, I don't love that. But I I think this is why. Because he's a tender plant that needed some shielding for a season. I wonder if it's so that Mary and Joseph had time with just their boy, you know, just their son, so that he could learn and grow. Greats for grace, just like we know he did. I That's what I picture when I picture a tender plant coming out of dry ground. He's just being, he's, he, he's given some insulation for a season so that he can grow and learn and develop. And then when you get to verse three is where you start to see that Shield come off and you learn more about what his life is like, especially his mortal ministry. He's despised. He's rejected of men. One of my favorite conference talks about this was um from Vincent Halick, I think is his name, and he talked about the widow's heart. I I just had never thought about this before. But he talked about how a widow's heart is similar to the saviors in that they're despised. They're often rejected of men. They they are carrying the weight of other people on their shoulders. They are someone who had companionship and warmth for a season and then were left alone. I mean, there were so many, I I can't remember how many of these he said versus what was in my head as I was studying. But I wondered if that's why the Savior spent so much of his ministry taking care of widows, because they were basically in similitude of him, at least his heart. Uh, They had burdens that he could understand, and he wanted to rush to them. That's why I think he goes all the way to Nain to help that widow who just lost her son. He is seeking out those who are in struggle like he will experience, and he's trying to comfort them. Isn't that the character of Christ? That knowing that these hard things are coming for him, instead of focusing on his own heart, he seeks the heart of others that he can relieve? I just, right? Isn't that exactly who he is? When you flip the page, you see it goes even deeper. That He's a man of sorrows. He's acquainted with grief. People esteemed him not. He bore our griefs and carried our sorrows and we esteemed him stricken. Those phrases, bearing our grief and carrying our sorrows, they have such compassion in them. Um, I (laughs) okay, here's what I'll say. I'm trying to do this. When Jason was first diagnosed, one of my struggles is um, I felt like I was experiencing pain and struggle I hadn't experienced in the past and I didn't know who to turn to that could relate And it's not that I didn't appreciate all the condolences and the, you know, the kindness that came my way, but I felt like they couldn't relate. And so there was a distance between us, even though they didn't want there to be one, there just was. And one of my greatest comforts came when I turned to a new friend I had made. I had worked on the Light the World, the very first Light the World campaign, and she worked on it with me. Her name's Colette, and her husband had suffered cancer twice already. Um, They were kind of cancer, but similar hard. And So I wrote her an email. We barely knew each other. I wrote her an email and told her about Jason's diagnosis and my fears. And she wrote back. And I don't even remember all the words. I just remember her saying, Maria, I believe in miracles. And I believe in the power of hope. Don't lose hope. And from her, those words were like this balm to my soul. Because I knew she knew where my heart was and what it felt like to be in this completely incapable situation and try to just navigate it. And I feel like that's what one of the greatest blessings of the atonement of Jesus Christ. Because we know that he was wounded for our transgressions, that he was bruised for our iniquities, that he bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. He knows the exact combination of hard and good that you have experienced. And so he is really the only one you can turn to that can comfort you. Elder Holland, I think I put this in the notes, but he has this great reference where he talks about storms and he says, only somebody who has endured the waves, this isn't a quote, it's in the notes, but if you've endured the waves and battered the sea, you can then turn to the sea and say, peace, be still. Only those who have experienced that hard, like the Savior experienced, can then turn to me and say, Maria, peace, be still, or have joy, Cheer up because I've overcome the world. You know, like he can say that to me because I believe him. And I just, you know, there's power in knowing that about your savior. The closer you come to knowing how he has in, endured your pains and your grief and your sorrow helps you realize, oh, I can turn to him because he knows. I, I hope that makes sense. It was this sweet, like kind Softness from the Spirit that kind of settled on me as I was studying these verses. I also love what you see about his agency and how he used it. In seven, it talks about how he he was oppressed, but he opened not his mouth. I think what he's trying to remind us of is the Savior chose this. He chose to be our Savior. So we shouldn't feel incredible guilt using the atonement of Jesus Christ. What we should feel is gratitude. Because he chose this course, because he loves us. In fact, that's what I love, what you see in 10. So it says, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Of course, I don't think it means that that God, our Father in heaven, rejoiced in this. In fact, we know that our Heavenly Father had to almost hide himself in those moments. There's a great talk from one of the general authorities in the notes where he talks about how grateful he is to the Father for not shrinking in this moment, the same way he's grateful to the Savior for not shrinking that he was able to endure this so that all could be saved. I love what he talks about with the seed. He says, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days. What President Nelson taught me in one of his joy talks, I want to say it's in 2016, it's in the notes, but he talks about how he references, where is it? It's in Hebrews, it's in Hebrews chapter 12, I think it's verse two. And he says, for the joy that was set before him, the Savior endured the cross. What joy could the Savior possibly see What joy could be before him as he's on the cross? And what President Nelson said is, it's us. When we participate and when we use the atonement of Jesus Christ and we we feel our burdens lifted, we feel wounds that are unhealable be healed. When we see sins that seem permanent be removed. That's the joy that is set before him. Not just that, but our infirmities, our sicknesses, our weaknesses, all those things that can be healed through the atonement of Jesus Christ, in, either in this life or in the life to come. That's what the Savior could see, and that's what helped him endure the cross is the joy that was set before him. What I love about that is I feel like in a small way, we can do the same thing. When you're dealing with incredible hard, and every one of us is, um, you can look to the joy. Why is it worth enduring this right now? What joy is coming in this life and in the life to come because I chose to endure it well. And then the spirit can help you. And then those hosts that are on the other side of the veil can help you because you're engaged and you're ready to push forward, even though it's hard. I love how it wraps up in verse 12. It says, he hath poured out his whole soul unto death. We know from Joseph Smith that a soul is a body and a spirit combined. And the savior gave all of it over. He gave all of it, body and soul, his whole body, spirit, and soul all together. That's what he put on the table. That's what he offered us. And it is a powerful gift that we should just be incredibly grateful for. Some of that joy that was set before the savior that helped him endure the cross has to be the gathering, right? Like He must have been able to look forward to this day when people will sing. So if you look in 54, sing, O barren, thou didst not bear. Remember, the Abrahamic covenant, the children of Israel were blessed with the ability to have endless posterity if they would keep the covenant, but they didn't. So there was a, a barrenness that occurred. And in the end of time, when they're gathered back in, that's when things are healed again, when... They will sing forth, and they'll see that they have children that they didn't even know they had. In fact, if you look at it, he says, "Big, major tents, bigger. So if you look into to enlarge the place of thy tent, stretch forth your curtains, lengthen the cords and the stakes. Your family's about to get a lot bigger." And the people who were with me on the live last week, I was talking about how I had just seen a commercial for Relative Race. If you haven't watched that show on BYU TV, I love that show. It's it just is like they their whole the premise of the show is that they find people who have lost touch with family or have never known their family because of adoption or, you know, whatever their circumstances were. And they try to unite them across the country. And it's just this, all of a sudden in one moment, someone's whole family tree just like (sighs) bursts, and they rejoice every time there is this like feeling of connection and peace and recognition of, oh my word, you look just like me. And it's just, it makes you cry. That's what it does. It makes you cry. And I, that's how I see the gathering. It is this reuniting and it's not just one-to-one. It's, you know, you reunite two people and all of a sudden huge families are connected and there's a rejoicing. So that's what the gathering is. It's this one by one, we're going to gather everybody up. And because you know, you're connected now, everybody that is related to you is now connected. And it's this spider web of connection that's going to be powerful to watch. But that's, I think, one of the joys that he must have thought on, because this is a time of rejoicing. You're going to break forth. You're not going to fear like you see in verse four. He talks about how there was a small season where he had to not hear them for a time because of their choices, but that that will end in great mercies will I gather thee. In eight, he talks about his everlasting kindness. He had to hide his face from them for a season, but now that season is over and it's time to gather. It's time to bring everyone home. In 10, he talks about how his kindness will not depart from them. At this point, these latter days when people are gathered, there will not be a separation again. It's only reunion from that happy point forward. And then I love what he promises. So if you look all the way into like 13, he promises that their children shall be taught of the Lord and great shall be the peace of thy children. Similar to what we talked about last week, I feel like one of the hardest things when you know you've made big mistakes, or even small mistakes, is that you worry that your children will mimic those or expand them. Um, I think all of us have these worries about our kids, that our weaknesses are going to be magnified in them. And I love this promise, that when you choose to honor your covenants the best you can, today he promises that your children will be taught and great will be the peace of your children. There will be consequences. There will be repercussions for all of our choices, but no one will be lost or left behind. He will find a way to reach after them. And then of course, promises of safety in 17, that weapons that are formed against them won't be successful. And then this last phrase, this is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. Look to the rock from whence you are hewn. This is what you've set aside for generations. This inheritance, this safety, this promise of posterity, You've set it aside. Pick it back up again and let's go. One of my favorite stories in all of scripture is the prodigal son. I think it's probably everybody's, but I love, when I read Isaiah 55, I almost feel like I'm hearing the father of the prodigal speak. And his son is finally coming back home after losing his inheritance and being separated for a season. He's coming back home. And the son is worried that he won't be accepted or he can't be pardoned. And the dad is like, Kill the fatted calf, get the ring, get the robe. We have things to do. And that's what I hear. So in verse one, everyone that thirsteth, come to the waters. Come, partake. You don't need money. You don't need price. These are not, this doesn't mean that there isn't sacrifice involved in coming to the Lord. There is sacrifice. There is consecration involved. There's a great talk from Elder Uchdorf that talks about this in the notes, but you don't need any worldly money for price. And all of us have felt that, right? Like you, You can partake of the goodness of the gospel in its fullness without any financial advantages, without any big education or big degrees. You can soak in the goodness of the gospel. And he wants you to. He's inviting you to. He also invites you to eat with that which is good. This is in verse two. I love this because I just, why I say this week, I taught a lesson. It was all just about the plan of salvation, but we were focused on going deeper into that creation story and into the experience of Adam and Eve. And we went deep, <laughs> not, 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 it was not tricky doctrine. Not, it was actually really simple and clear, but I, I, we went into a deeper place and they were writing notes and they, like we were, it felt so good. It felt like we were eating richly in the doctrine. Um, I, I wish I could articulate it better. That's what I think he's inviting us to do here. When you come to him and when you really want to drink, he has so much more than you can consume. What he has is so filling and so sustaining that you can't even really wrap your head around it. That's his promise. When you go a little bit further, he invites you in six to seek the Lord while he may be found. To me, I read this as don't waste mortality. This life is the time to prepare to meet God. And I don't know why it is that when you have your spirit and your body connected in mortality, there. You seem to be able to learn things that you can't learn otherwise or do things you can't do otherwise, because we can see lots of revelation in the Doctrine and Covenants about how people are eagerly awaiting the day when they are resurrected and have this union again of their body and their spirit. This is the time to prepare to meet God. So seek him while he can be found in this life. I also love what you see in seven. You can almost hear the prodigal son worrying about whether he'll be accepted of the father. And the father says, let him return unto the Lord. He will have mercy upon him to our God. He will, for he will abundantly pardon. Here's what I love most about this chapter that I'd never noticed before. Eight and nine are some of the most common verses in all of, you know, you've heard these a hundred times for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways. My ways, saith the Lord, the heavens are higher than the earth. So are my ways higher than your ways. When you read those verses in isolation, they're beautiful on their own. When you read them in the context of repentance, I think they're even better. You know, the one right before it is about the we being worried or the children of Israel being worried that they won't be pardoned, that they they don't deserve the forgiveness that they're seeking. And he then responds with, my thoughts aren't your thoughts. My ways are higher than your ways. This happens when we repent, right? We start to get tricked in our minds and we think he's not going to be patient with me this time. I've made this same mistake. 10 times already. And I knew the answer and I didn't do it. He's going to be angry with me, or he's going to be, he's going to withhold his love from me, or I live too far on the margins. I'll never fit in or whatever it is. When you're thinking about repentance, this is when you need to remember that his thoughts are not your thoughts, whatever you're beating yourself up with. Those are not his thoughts. Those are not his ways. His ways are higher. He sees you farther he sees who you were premortally, who you will become eternally, and he sees higher. So stop beating yourself up. That's what I had to tell myself, like, Maria, stop. He doesn't think like you. He doesn't think, gosh, I really wish you would just stop dropping the ball. He doesn't think like me. He thinks higher and bigger and stronger, and I need to trust that promise. I wish I had more time to go into it, but I also love the promise you see in 10. This is where he talks about, again, I think speaking on this repentance vein, he talks about how it will give blessings or um, that things will grow for the sower and that there will be bread to the eater. To me, this is almost like the two brothers in the prodigal story, um, that those who have been sowing all this time will receive blessings. Those who need the atonement of Jesus Christ for repentance sake will receive blessings. There are the atonement actually feeds both. Uh, go in the notes you can learn more about that. But I love one of the blessings that you see. It comes in 12. For he shall go out with joy. And he'll, he'll be led forth with peace. Those are the blessings of, I, to me, the big brother. that He will also feel joy and he will feel peace. In addition to the repentant brother who has to come around and is immediately forgiven, there's joy on, on both. Uh, go in the notes. You can learn a lot more. I love that you find that in 55. When you go into 56... This is when it extends to people who are outside the family. and Oh, it is so good. You guys, it's so good. So 56, this is when he reaches out to the stranger. So you see in three, neither let the son of the stranger. So now that you're assured and you know you've been forgiven, extend that goodness to others. Don't let the stranger feel like he's a stranger, that he has utter, utterly separated me from his people. Neither let the eunuch say, behold, I'm a dry tree. The eunuch just means an emasculated man, someone who can't have children, and they are outside of the covenant according to the law of Moses. And this is when the Lord is saying, oh no, everyone who thinks that they are on the margins, everyone who thinks they don't fit into the gospel of Jesus Christ, make sure they don't feel that. That's our role. All of us who have been forgiven and received the fatted calf and the ring and the robe that we experience when we're forgiven and given another chance, we're supposed to extend that to anyone who feels on the margins, so he uses this phrase, this eunuch group, as a an example, a metaphor to say, anyone who feels outside, make sure they know they can come in, and that's there's a way to come in. It's in four. Take hold of my covenant, that you need to keep my sabbaths. When sabbaths is plural like that, that means it's the the full gospel. It's not just like honoring the Sabbath day. It, it's bigger than that. It's the feasts and the the covenant, all of it. In five, you see it goes even further. He says to these outsiders, even unto them will I give in mine house and within my walls a place and a name better than the sons or daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Anyone who is willing to accept the covenant, no matter how far outside of the norm of the church you feel, if you're willing to accept his covenant and live it, you have a place and a name. I mean, doesn't that sound like temple imagery right there in the verse? an everlasting name that cannot be removed. Think of it with the prodigal son. Like he wanted to come back and be a servant and the dad said, oh no, you are an inheritor. You are my son. You have a name, you have a place in this house. You belong here. That's what he wants us to teach every person who feels on the margins. And then there's an invitation. It comes in six. These are the qualifications. If you want to have these blessings, you need to join yourself to the Lord, to serve him, to love him, to be his servant and to <clears throat> to be his servants, everyone that keepeth the Sabbath from polluting it and taketh hold of my covenant. If you choose to honor his covenants, if you choose to live the life he's asking you to live, these blessings can be yours. And the blessings pour out. What I love is how he phrases them in seven. Even them will I bring to my holy mountain, my temple, that they make. I will make them joyful. That's That's his job. He's going to find ways to make you joyful. And in my house of prayer, their burnt offerings and their sacrifices shall be accepted. What I loved about this piece of the doctrine is he recognizes that for many to live these covenants is a remarkable sacrifice. And he acknowledges that sacrifice and he accepts that sacrifice and he asks them to come and to partake. And that covers everybody. There are no margins in the Lord's view. So that's what he says in eight. I will gather the outcasts of Israel, gather others besides them. It's this great coming in and it's a powerful image for anybody in the latter days. Our savior, Jesus Christ is incredibly forgiving of weakness. He is strict with rebellion. Um, And that's what you're going to see in 57. There are leaders who were supposed to be leading the church, taking care of the poor and the needy. Helping people find truth, and instead they have gone far astray. And he is frustrated. In fact, you hear him in three draw near hither, ye sons of the sorceress, ye seed of the adulterer. This is harsh language. It almost feels like what I picture the Savior's face looking like when he tossed the tables. That's what I picture when I read chapter 57. He's frustrated because these are not small rebellions. This is big. In fact, you see that. Like in in five, he talks about, well, four, they say they've made sports. So they're they're toying with their leadership, they're toying with people they should have taken care of. And then in five, they're worshiping idols, they're sacrificing children, they are afar off. He compares it to having an adulterous relationship because remember, the covenant was represented by a marriage. And so here he's saying, not only are you separating yourselves from me, but you're you're covenanting with other gods. You're you're basically in someone else's bed, is kind of how he's comparing it and that they're struggling with the greatness of the way, and they're missing it. So the result comes in 11, when he says, Thou hast not remembered me or laid it to heart. And so I held my peace as I did of old. This time of apostasy will be a time of silence from God. Not because he doesn't want to teach them or hope to bestow blessings on them. They simply aren't obedient, so he can't bless them. What you'll see in a lot of these chapters is that the Savior still loves them. He's going to talk about in this chapter how he's going to still seek after them over time. What he wants, he will always love the children of Israel. He will always love you and me. I really don't think that will ever change or has it ever changed no matter what we do. What he really wants to do though is to love and bless. The only way he can bless us is if we are obedient and if we choose to honor our covenants. He wants both of those things. Uh, and they aren't choosing it. So they're struggling. Uh, And what I love is where it shifts gears. So in 14, from 14 on, it's kind of talking more to the righteous. So he talks about how we need to prepare the way. I picture this like when I'm running on a trail and there's a big rock in the way that I try, if I can, to like actually pick up that rock and chuck it (laughs) so that nobody else trips on the same rock. You probably do the same thing. I think that's what we're supposed to do for each other spiritually. As we encounter stumbling blocks, as there's part parts of the doctrine that are hard that I have to work through and wrestle with and then find answers to, I'm supposed to share them. When I get revelation that helps me as a parent, ideally you share it and you pass that on to somebody else. That's what I think he means by removing the stumbling blocks. And then he talks about himself in these beautiful terms. He It's in verse 15. He says, for thus say it the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity. Can you think of like a bigger, I don't even know what that means. Inhabiteth eternity. I think it means He's outside of space. He's outside of time. He's outside of geography that we would understand. He, he inhabited eternity. What I love about 15 is he also talks about who he wants to be his neighbors. It's the humble and the contrite. He doesn't want everything. He wants people who are meek. And are, I think it's why he says the meek will inherit the earth, because these are people who are are constantly trying to turn to him and constantly trying to learn and grow that's who he wants close. That's why he's promising us that if we will build the Zion society, he will come. He will live among us because th- that's where we'll be comfortable together. That's what he's encouraging us to be. Uh, he also talks about how when, when people are welcomed back, when the children of Israel are gathered again, that he will, they will be healed by him. This is around verse 18. They'll heal him. I will lead him also. I'll restore comforts unto him and his mourners. I love that combination because I feel like this is what he promises all of us. Many of us experience pain and adversity because of the choices of others. Remember I told you, I call these intersections of agency where you feel like you get rammed because of someone else's agency. He's promising in this verse that he will take care of the one who did the ramming, who made the big mistakes, but he will also comfort those who are the mourners, the family members, the parents, the like friends who, whose lives aren't feel off course for a time because of someone else's choices. He's going to comfort both and care for both. And then he promises peace, peace to to those who are far away, peace to those that are close. And also this last phrase, it's in 20. He talks about the alternative option, which is that you'll be troubled like a sea. And I love this phrase. He says, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. What I found, especially with working with this YSA age group, is that sometimes they have a tendency to want to repent and not use the atonement. You know, like even I think sometimes I get in this trap where I think I can just change my behavior. Like let's say they have an addiction to pornography or even just an interest in pornography, and then they wanna fix it. So they don't wanna involve the bishop and they don't wanna involve the atonement necessarily. They just wanna not do those things anymore. The problem with that is things aren't actually clean. So when you get into a state of contention or frustration, mire and dirt come up again. The best visual I can think of for this is like if you've ever been to a restaurant where you go to sit down and the table is clear, but it's not clean. As soon as you put your hands down, you're like, oh, (laughs) does anyone have any Clorox wipes? You know, like you can you can tell that it it appears clean on the surface, but it's not clean. That's what happens when we don't involve the savior in our repentance. One, we lose potential for power because it is hard to combat all these bad behaviors on our own. So we lose an option to have his power to help us do it. But we also lose the ability to be wiped clean. And the result of that is if you aren't wiped clean, then that mire and that dirt will bubble up to the surface again, especially when you're in contention, when things are hard, or when you're doubting or you're struggling in some way, Satan loves to toss that sea. So we need to clean you need to use the atonement of jesus christ to become clean um and, and then at the very end he talks about how there's no peace there's no peace for the wicked there's no joy in sin so there's this invitation you almost want to go back and read in 56 it's just this invitation to come unto him drink liberally take in the goodness that is available to you through the atonement of jesus christ so that this is not where your story ends Thanks again for joining me, you guys. If this content is resonating well with you, I hope you'll consider liking and subscribing, leaving a review if you can, and then also popping over to the full course. In the Creative Come Follow Me course, I provide weekly content in full videos, so full videos, the insights, videos of all three object lessons, as well as all the tools you need to support it. So within the course, you'll find professionally designed printables each week. You'll find extensive study notes so that you can go a lot deeper into the text. You'll also find three years of back content. So for since 2020 in the Book of Mormon, I've been creating weekly content and object lessons to help facilitate meaningful, memorable, simple learning. So if those are tools that would help your family or your class, I hope you'll consider subscribing. Head on over to creativecomefollowme.com. You can find sample videos, sample printables, and an option to subscribe for a month and test it out for your family and see if it's a good fit for you. I hope you enjoy it.